And I want to pause and pray for our time together as we dive in. God, as we come now to your word, we pray that we would have ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so God, help us to receive your everlasting word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the original language, in the Greek, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 is one long sentence. It's a grammar lover's nightmare. We, last week, we looked at the first two-thirds of this long run-on sentence. We saw in verses 3 through 5 that the Apostle Peter begins his letter to these believers in Asia Minor by reminding them of their future inheritance that awaits them. That in light of the salvation that is coming, he calls them to rejoice. That at the end of this life, what is being kept in heaven for them is an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And so he says, you rejoice in this, even though now at present, your circumstances might be hard. They can sing even in their suffering because their salvation is secure. And the tribulations that they're enduring are actually preparing for them for that day of glory. And so Peter points them forward as a way of helping them endure their present struggles. But now in verses 10 through 12, what Peter's going to do is he's going to point them backward to help them understand how fortunate they are to be living in the age that they're living in. So even though they're going through trials, what Peter wants them to know is how fortunate they are that they were born when they were born and that they were living in the day that they're living in. It's easy to imagine, isn't it, how these believers who were facing trials for their faith might be tempted to wish that they lived in a different time and place. You ever played that game before? We've probably all played this game at some point where we thought to ourselves, man, life would be so much easier if I lived in a different era. Or if I lived in a different place. Perhaps Peter wants, not perhaps, what Peter wants is for these believers to realize how fortunate they are to have been born when they were born and to have received the gospel that has been preached to them. For centuries, the the prophets in the Old Testament had been anxiously anticipating when the Messiah would come. And so various prophets at different times in redemptive history had foretold different things of the coming Messiah. Moses had spoken of a prophet like unto himself that would come, a prophet like or even greater than Moses. David had spoken of a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Isaiah and Jeremiah had pointed to this king who would come in the line of David, a a righteous branch from the stump of Jesse, one who would rule on David's throne forever. Isaiah had spoken of a servant of the Lord, anointed with God's spirit to proclaim good news to those in captivity, to comfort those who mourn in Zion. He had spoken of a suffering servant who would bear the chastisement of his people. David had spoken of a holy one who would not experience the corruption that accompanies death. The prophets longed to know how all of these different threads 
of prophecy would eventually come together and accomplish the fulfillment that God had promised. And initially, they may have thought to themselves that these would be fulfilled in the near future, that they might even get to experience at least some of these realities in their lifetime. But eventually, they came to see and realize that, no, they, they were not going to get to experience these realities, that they were pointing forward to a future coming day. Verse 12 says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. The prophets came to see that their work was a work of preparation, that they were preparing a future people of God for the Messiah. A different group than themselves were going to get to experience these realities. And Peter tells these believers in Asia Minor, these things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you. Don't miss what he's telling them. Peter's telling these believers the day that all the prophets long to see has come. And you are the ones that get to experience it. The prophets spent their lives investigating, studying, trying to connect the dots and discern at what time these things would come to pass and how they would come to pass. But it's these believers in Asia Minor who are the ones who get to experience all of that. They're the ones who get to live in the unveiled mystery of the gospel. In the Bible, the word mystery is not something that hasn't been solved. It was something that was hidden for a long time but has now been revealed. And what Peter is telling these believers is that the mystery of the gospel has been revealed. I want you to imagine with me a never-before-seen painting that was discovered in a cavern in Italy. And based on some other pieces and artifacts that they found in the cave, imagine that it was believed that this painting was none other than a Leonardo da Vinci painting. But for some reason, unknown to these archaeologists who made this discovery, the painting had been shredded into hundreds and hundreds of pieces. And so putting it together was like trying to solve a massive jigsaw puzzle. And in fact, they weren't even sure that they had all of the pieces. But slowly and carefully, they began to dig up these pieces of this painting and, and they began to restore them and clean them and, and, tr- and then lay them all out and try to begin to put them back together to make sense of things. The work was slow, but little by little, small portions of this giant painting began to come together in recognizable shapes and forms. And yet there were still gaps in the painting. The excavation work was taking a long time. It was a slow work. And as time went on, these experts began to recognize that the work would not be completed in their lifetime. And so they began to describe some of what they were finding. And as these descriptions of this painting got out to the public, people began to long for the day when the the painting would finally be pieced back together. In fact, the way that they began to describe this painting caused many to believe that it might be da Vinci's greatest masterpiece. And these archaeologists and these 
experts restoring this painting begin to say to themselves, someday, someone is going to get to look at this piece fully put together and restored and framed. What an amazing day that's going to be. And so they continued on in their work until their dying day, never getting to experience the full masterpiece because they were serving not themselves, but some later group of people who would get to experience the work in all of its beauty and in all of its glory. And that's what Peter is trying to communicate to these believers. They are the ones who get to experience the masterpiece in all of its glory. They are the ones fortunate enough to have been born in this age of messianic fulfillment. Christ had come. His name was Jesus. He was from Nazareth. He, he was the righteous branch born in the line of Jesse and David. He was the spirit-anointed servant of the Lord who was mighty indeed and performed many miracles and spoke with authority. Jesus was the suffering servant who was wounded for the transgressions of his people and bore the chastisement of their sins by dying on the cross. He was the Holy One who did not see corruption because on the third day after his death, he rose from the dead. He was the priest who ascended to the right hand of God and lives forever to make intercession for his people. The glimpses that the prophets tried to piece together all take shape in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And those fortunate enough to live on the AD side of history get to stare at the full painting. The mystery that was hidden for the ages has now been revealed in the face of Jesus and we behold the masterpiece framed in all of its glory. And so what Peter wants these believers to know is that despite their present sufferings, he wants them to know how blessed they are to live in this age of fulfillment, to have the gospel clearly Proclaim to them. And if that's not enough to convince them, Peter then turns from the prophets to the angels. And he tells them that the gospel that they have received is something that the angels long to catch a glimpse of. He says, the gospel that was preached to you is something angels crane their necks to look at. What captures the attention of angels more than anything is the mystery of Christ's suffering and glory. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. What occupies their attention, what occupies angels' attention more than anything is the salvation of sinners through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Luke 15 verse 10 says that there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. You want to know what gets heaven lit up? When someone comes to faith in Jesus. The angels in heaven love the gospel. And don't miss it. They're only observers. In other words... What Peter is hitting at here is that there is a categorical difference 
in how angels and how humans experience the gospel. Angels are mere onlookers. Only humans can respond to the gospel in faith. Only humans can be saved by the gospel. To put it into a sports realm, angels are spectators, but humans get to be participants. They get to be athletes on the field. And you'll have to forgive me for my illustration, but I couldn't help but think of the Little Mermaid. You know, my heroes in the faith read Russian novels, and I watch The Little Mermaid. (laughs) You know the story. Ariel wants to be up there where the people are. She wants to catch a glimpse. She wants a taste of life above water. She wants to experience what it's like to be human. She's a mermaid. And angels are God's ministering spirits who do his bidding. There's a real sense in which angels know so much more than we do. They're invited into God's plans to perform his bidding. But, but, but there's also this reality that they'll never experience the gospel like we have the opportunity to, to experience it. Because God's son didn't become an angel. He became human. Jesus didn't die for angels. He died to ransom humans. Jesus doesn't live to intercede for angels, but he's praying for us. And the gospel is something that angels will never experience and know the way that we can experience and know it. And yet they are mesmerized by it. They long to catch a glimpse of it. That word for glimpse, in verse 12, it's the same word that's used in the Gospels, specifically the Gospel of John. You remember the story when the women come back from the tomb on Easter morning and they tell the disciples that the tomb is empty and it says that Peter and John took off racing toward the tomb. Don't you love the little tidbit that... The one Jesus loved outran Peter to the tomb, right? You know who's writing this gospel. John's like, I beat him. (laughs) And it says, when they got there, John glimpsed, peered into, peeked into the tomb to see if it was truly empty. And then Peter goes all the way in and says, John, it's true. You got to come in here. And it says that when John followed Peter inside, He believed. The angels long for that kind of glimpse. That kind of glimpse that washes over you and turns your world upside down into living faith. That kind of glimpse that sends chills up your spine and melts you. It's a saving glimpse into the gospel. And Peter wants these believers in Asia Minor to know what an absolute gift that is. That they have been born in the age where the gospel has been preached and and that their lives have been changed by it. That they've glimpsed the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. 
As Karen Jobes explains, they are more privileged in the perspective of redemptive history than they could have even known. More privileged than either the great prophets of old or the angels above. And listen to me, church. If that was the case for these believers in Asia Minor, that's the case for you and me. We still live in this age of revelation, of mystery fulfillment. We live in this age where we know who the Christ is. We know how the threads come together. We get to see the full picture of redemption and experience the gospel in a life-changing way. And this begs a question. Has this happened to you? Have you looked into the gospel in a way that changed you? Have you truly glimpsed it? Has it turned your world upside down? And if it has, I wonder if you have lost the wonder of it. Here's my burden for us this morning. Has the gospel become too ordinary for you? At this moment, is the gospel to you a Da Vinci masterpiece or a handkerchief? You know, handkerchiefs are useful. We use them to wipe our hands clean. There's nothing glorious about them. Once you've used it, it's served its purpose. And here's my fear. That many of us view the gospel that way. That we see it as useful. It gets you out of hell. But once you've used it, once you've believed in Jesus for salvation, you don't really need it anymore. So you can toss it aside. Because it doesn't really have much meaning for you outside of that. But friends, listen, listen. The gospel is not a napkin. It's a masterpiece. It's not just useful. It's wonderful. It's something to be stared at for long periods of time. It's something to marvel at and revel in. It's something angels long to peer into. Pastor Tim Keller says, religious people find God useful, but Christians find God beautiful. If you haven't heard Pastor Keller went to be with Jesus on Friday morning. You've probably put this together by now because I quote him almost every Sunday. But Keller was perhaps my greatest hero in the faith. There are so many reasons why this is so, but certainly not the least of which is this. According to his son, Michael, some of the very last words that, that Keller uttered before his passing were this. I just can't wait to see Jesus. Keller treasured Jesus. 
Christians are people who don't merely find Jesus useful. They are people that find him wonderful. They're people that can't wait to see him. Jake Meter, who's the director of Mirror Orthodoxy, reminds us that at the heart of Christian, Christian faith is the encounter with Christ. And not just a one-time encounter, but an ongoing encounter. The goal of the Christian life is not merely to escape hell. It's to experience the goodness of Jesus. I wonder if the gospel has gripped you like that. As the psalmist would put it, to taste and to see that the Lord is good. Not just categorically good, but experientially good. If that's never happened, let me encourage you this morning to keep staring at the masterpiece. To consider it until it captures you. This is how we change, by the way. This is how Christians change. We become as we behold. Change happens. Listen to me. Please hear this. Change happens more by staring than by striving. As we behold the mystery of Christ, we become like him in the process. And so here's what I want to do with the rest of our time together. I want to try to help us with this question of how to do that. In these verses, I think Peter actually gives us a way of reading the scriptures that helps us to see the gospel as a masterpiece. And so let me offer three ideas quickly from these verses about how to read the Bible. Number one, read, fancy word, Christocentrically or in a Christ-centered way. I want you to notice what Peter says here. Notice what he says. He says, he says that the prophets prophesied about grace. You see that? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you. The main theme of the Old Testament is the grace that was to come. Old Testament is full of stories and genealogies and poems and laws and weird cultic rituals. But the sum of all of that, Peter says, is a story, is a theme of grace. Can I offer a thought to you? One of the reasons why you may struggle with the Bible and particularly with the Old Testament is that you're reading it like a rule book and not a redemption story. Yes, there are laws. There are commands in the Bible, Old and New Testament. But do you know that those laws are always hemmed in by love? Let me give you an example. When you get to the book of Exodus which contains the Ten Commandments, right? The second half of the book of Exodus is, is God beginning to unpack the law, how to follow the Ten Commandments. But have you ever noticed that God rescues a people out of slavery and then takes them to Sinai where he gives them the law? So grace precedes law. 
right? It's, it's mercy first. It's redemption first. And then it's, here's how we're going to live in relationship with one another now. It's not do first, and then I'll give you relationship. It's, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to give you mercy. And then I want you to live in light of that reality. And so here's what this means. In the Bible, the indicatives always precede the imperatives. The indicatives, the statements, what God has definitively done for you always comes first. And then the commands, the imperatives come after that and come in light of that. The prevailing theme of the Old Testament is grace. If you're not reading it that way, fundamentally you're missing it. The second thing that Peter says is that the prophets testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. In other words, the main way that this theme of grace comes out in the Old Testament is through the prophet's telling of the coming Messiah. So let me put it simply. The whole Bible, not just the New Testament, is about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The whole thing's about Jesus. I want to show this to you. The Apostle Paul, on trial before King Agrippa, Acts 26, this is what Paul says. I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah would suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Sufferings, glories. See that? John 5, 39, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees, and he tells them this, you pour over the scriptures. Remember, their scriptures were the Old Testament. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. In my favorite passage, Luke 24, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, talking with two of his disciples. He gently rebukes them, and he says to them, How foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's a way of saying the whole Old Testament. He interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Let me make this simple. And I'm borrowing from Keller here. There are really only two ways to read the Bible. Is it basically about you and what you must do? Or is it basically about Jesus and what he has done? And what Peter is here telling us is that it's about Jesus and what he has done. The whole Bible is about Jesus, including every Old Testament passage. And the Bible comes to life when you begin to read it through this lens. It's like putting 3D glasses on. You ever gone to a 3D movie and tried to watch it without the glasses? It's confusing. You put the glasses on, it's like, this is so much more enjoyable. This makes so much more sense. Noah's Ark, which is a weird story to paint on the halls of our kids' area. It's a story of a flood where everyone dies. 
Noah's Ark becomes not just a story of a flood, but a picture of salvation through judgment. And in the same way that Noah and his family were spared by heeding God's word, believing in faith what God said, we are spared the very same way. We got to get inside of the ark who is Jesus. Joseph's innocent suffering that ultimately leads to the salvation of others points to Christ's innocent suffering that leads to the salvation of the world. Esther's courageous statement, if I perish, I perish, points forward to Jesus who essentially says, not if I perish, but when I perish, I'll perish for the people. It's all pointing to Jesus. And the Bible is a treasure trove of gospel riches when you begin to read it this way. Let me, let me offer four ways to find Jesus in the Old Testament. Some passages predict Jesus. These are prophecies. So we think of like Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. That's clearly a prophecy that points to Jesus. Right? Other, other passages prepare us. They expose our need for the coming of Jesus. So you read the story of Judges, and what's the refrain? There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Clearly, we need a righteous king here. We need somebody to lead us forward. That's Jesus. Or sometimes passages picture or parallel Jesus. So you think about Moses in the wilderness with the people where they're uh, invaded by these snakes and this, these venomous snakes are biting the people and, and, and Moses is told to cast a bronze serpent and to hold it up. And if the people will look on the serpent, they'll be healed from their bites. What do you think that's picturing? Salvation by faith in the curse. Jesus was cursed for us. He took the venom of sin in himself. The cursed one became our deliverance. Sometimes the Old Testament patterns Jesus, either through a person or through an event like the Exodus or through an institution. But you can always get to him. Whether, whether it's a prediction or a preparation or a picture or a pattern, when you begin to see that it's all about Jesus, it begins to open up a whole new world of wonder. And this leads to the second way I think we should read, not just Christocentrically, but curiously. Read curiously. Notice how Peter describes the prophets in these verses. He says, they searched and carefully investigated. They inquired. The prophets came to the scriptures with a curiosity about them. They, they, they dug in to see what they could find. They were looking for clues in how it would all come together, how the Messiah would actually come. Let me, let me give you one example of how we see this in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 14... There's this story of this guy named Melchizedek. And, and Abraham, on his way home from a battle, finds himself in Salem. And there's this guy named Melchizedek that comes out and blesses Abraham. And Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek, gives him tenth of everything that he owns. Melchizedek was this king of Salem. His name means king of righteousness. And he shows up in Genesis 14, and then he's just gone. No record of him. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in Psalm 110, David mentions him. Now, clearly, David's been reading his Bible. And he's like, who is this Melchizedek guy? 
David thinks that Melchizedek points to the, the coming Messiah. You are a priest forever. David is prophesying of the coming Messiah. And he declares, you're going to be like, like Melchizedek, who is a priest forever. What does David mean? Well, Melchizedek shows up out of nowhere, then vaporizes off the map. We don't know where he goes. It's almost like he has no beginning of days and no end of days. And as David reflects on the Messiah that's coming, the greater King David, the one that's going to rule forever, he says he's going to be a priest like Melchizedek who rules forever. He has no beginning of days, no end of days. He's reading the text curiously. Then the author of Hebrews connects the dots for us. Jesus is that king of righteousness, that king of peace, that, that priest who comes not from the lineage of Levi, but from the lineage of Melchizedek. Because he's going to be a priest forever. Friends, there's a whole world of that kind of curious reading to be done. Listen to me. Leviticus, it's a challenging book if it's just a bunch of cultic rules and rituals. Leviticus comes alive when you see that at the heart of these laws and rituals was a coming savior who upholds them and fulfills them for all of us. And that there are countless connections to be made when you approach it with curiosity looking for Christ. The author of Hebrews actually admonishes the believers he's writing to because he says they were like spiritual infants content to sip on the milk of the word when by this time they should be teachers of the word, eating the meat of the word, getting into the deep marrow of the word. He says, let's leave the elementary stuff and go on to maturity. What about you? Have you become lazy in your reading of the scriptures. Listen to me, there are so many gospel nuggets to be found in the word when you come with curiosity and an eye for Christ. And this leads to the last thing I'll say, which is that we should read confidently. Read confidently. Notice what Peter says. He says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come did so by the spirit of Christ, then he says that the messengers who announced the gospel did so by the Holy Spirit of God sent from heaven. Here's what Peter's saying. The gospel that we have received and the scriptures we possess are Holy Spirit inspired. And so every time we come to them, we draw near to the voice of the living God. God meets us here. And we don't have to convince him or, or cajole him to get him to reveal things to us. We don't have to come in our own wisdom. Spiritual things are discerned spiritually by the Spirit of God, bestowing, illuminating truth into our hearts. And friends, listen to me. The Spirit still speaks through these words. He still awakens these realities from the page to our hearts. And as we gaze into the word, God changes us by the spirit. And so we should come humbly, but expectantly. We should come prayerfully and full of hope that God will show up and show us more of Jesus. That he will mesmerize us 
and take us deeper. And so we come reading for more than information. We come for illumination that leads to transformation. We read with an anticipation that we would encounter the living Christ. That we might catch a glimpse of something that angels long to see and be changed. 